Today I'm honored to present the Fred Gregory episode. Fred is a 64 grad from Air Force who has amazing childhood stories. He is also a, uh, a survivor and, and a uh, heavily decorated uh, combat rescue helicopter pilot from Vietnam with over 550 missions. Uh, became, he became a uh, test pilot for helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft at the Navy Pax River program while he was in the Air Force. He uh, got accepted into the uh, astronaut program, has had has three shuttle rides under his belt, is a distinguished grad of Air Force from 2004. He's in the Astronaut Hall of Fame, and he actually has a, a Fairchild Hall building annex named after him. <laughs> this is a little longer than normal, and we start off a little more awkward than normal, but part of it's because I'm such a fanboy. I'm, I'm intimidated. Here you go. There he is. Good morning. Okay. <laughs> oh, so this is just a audio recording, not a. Yeah, you don't have to be all dressed up. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm not doing that to the people that want to don't want to see my ugly mug either. <laughs> well, so first of all, John, this is something that's that's part of the AOG or what? What's the deal? Well, it has it has evolved into where the AOG is asking me to do more than just my class and my squadron. Okay. I, I, my initial project was for the incoming class of 26, which shows up in about three weeks. Okay. And last year I recorded every one of my cadet squadron classmates that I could find. And I found of the 28 of us, one of them had passed, couldn't find one. But of the other 26, I got 21 to record with me. Oh, all right. So I, and I showed that to the AOG staff or I gave it to them kind of as a Christmas present last year at the end of the year. And they go, no, we need this. This has got to be bigger. <laughs> so they, <laughs> they assigned me the task of trying to find other classes and other, and other, uh, other uh, squadrons. And so I'm, I'm kind of slowly branching out into things as I do my research and trying to figure out who would be a good candidate to talk to. And I came across your letter that you wrote into the uh, checkpoints after they named the building after you. And I go, this guy sounds like a guy that he would have a great story. And I think it'd be very inspirational for the, the audience, which this is pretty much the audience of the AOG and some of the uh, cadets. Okay. <clears throat> and, and of course, it may spread into something bigger. So we, <laughs> we got to be careful with some of the st topics we talk about. But if you've had a chance to listen to my my squadron buddies. We talked about all the shenanigans we pulled and how bad things were for us. So we're, tr we're trying to get the message across that no matter how much difficulty you may be facing as a cadet or, or pondering this, this different college experience than the average person, it's going to pay off in the long run. And that, that's kind of the ultimate message for us. So were you the... Let's see. You're 76. Uh, did the did the women come in while you guys were firsties, or was it the next year? No, we we trained their ATOs, and that summer when we graduated, the first women showed up. Okay, so, so the year. Um, okay, so you weren't there when they first showed. Correct. We were a total demarcate. We were we were the last uh, guys who had the four year experience without the girls. Okay, and you're the last class with balls. Well, no, that was I think that was 79. Well, because they, yeah <laughs> and and they, they they have that on their rings but they tell everybody something different so i think it's kind of comical <laughs> <laughs> what what's what squadron were you i was in 36 i was a pink panther which is probably a squadron that did not exist when you were a cadet 
Oh no, no, no. We got when we got there, there were 16, and then they went to, uh, or maybe they were 20. They went to 24. Yeah, okay. when I got there, they were 20. They went to 24. Yeah. Now you you were pretty early in the in the program. Uh, yes, I guess we were. I'm trying to think. We were, our our class entered with a little fewer than 800. I think 63 may have had about that same number. I don't know about 61 or 62, uh, but it was a it was a small it was small. Yeah. And I saw, um, yeah, I saw the stats. They said that you entered 750, and you graduated 499. Well, yeah, no, well, actually 790. We came in with 790. Okay. okay. And 490 something is what we graduated, and we've lost 100. And as of last week, we lost uh, of this week, we had lost 157. Yeah. Of yeah. those, um, so <laughs> there are about 300 and 350 of us. Are you still are you still close to those guys? You know, um, I am. I you know I don't know if that's universal, but I am very close to the class, and um, I don't know if I know everybody in the class, but I have name recognition of them, and I have. Um, image recognition however the <laughs> image is based on what was in the yearbook so. okay okay yeah 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 i see people nowadays that i i remember from being cadets and i go oh my gosh what happened to this old guy <laughs> yeah look at that old guy uh, i think that we have a, a contingent in the dc area we meet about once a month oh cool uh, for lunch and that, that's probably 10 or 12 of us. And then I see a group out a, in Colorado Springs. Uh, that's a, you know, I don't know how large it is. It may be 15 or 20 guys out there. And then I see random guys around the country. Uh, and so I'd say in a typical year, I will maybe see 30 classmates 25 to 30 classmates and they're not always the same. No, that's but great. That's a, that's great. Uh, interaction. And we have, and I'm, when they dedicated the building, uh, there were 60, there were 64 of them there. <laughs> okay. 64 from 64. 64. Yeah. I don't, I, I didn't create that number. That's <laughs> <laughs> the class, uh, our Senate representative, uh came up with that i wrote the wrote a short article and uh mentioned that there were 64 that's people. great <laughs> uh, wow. and so i got to see all of those guys so yeah i think it's a pretty it's a a pretty it was it was a pretty close class as i am certain yours is too well and, i think yeah i think the the the, the crucible or the the, the uh, experience of four years under that duress kind of makes you a close class. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, could be. Um, it's, uh, they, it is my, it is my, I mean, it's really a brotherhood. It really is. And, and uh, it doesn't matter when you meet somebody again, 
you, as you know, you just pick up a conversation that you may have started 40 years before. <laughs> yeah. and it's like there's been no time between the, the, the initiation and the continuation of the conversation. <laughs> yeah, the the only the only negative for me is I if I get around enough of them, I start to think back to how bad it was for me. <laughs> I go, no, I'd no, rather no. think of the fun stuff than not the bad. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think that's all we remember was the fun stuff. <laughs> so, so this this uh, this uh, series of uh, episodes I'm doing, we're starting off kind of bouncing around, but I usually ask the uh, the guests what is their overall message to. The incoming class, the current cadets, the recent grads, and then the, the old folks like us. Like, do you have a do you have a message of what the Air Force Academy is about? I can. It's a. I think that you will get an answer, a different answer from everybody. Yeah. I can tell you that I just had my third grandchild graduate from the academy. Wow. Last Wednesday, and. I have a, a great grandchild uh, uh, who came into the family who is uh, 10 years younger, um, who announced last Wednesday that he was going to go to the academy. <laughs> okay. And so I don't know what it is that attracts people to the, to the Air Force Academy. I can tell you uh, that, um, that, uh, my family, my my family and my extended family, uh, consider it part of the maturation process, and uh, none of them who have graduated have come back and said it was the wrong decision to make. Uh, they say it's been, it was tough, uh, it was fun, it was intense. And my closest friends are my classmates. Yeah. And so I don't know how you summarize that uh, as a way of encouraging kids to go to the academy. But I think those who have graduated and have experienced the, the agony of, <laughs> of defeat and the thrill of victory, yeah. um, it, in some way, it's not a, a, something that can be expressed in words. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a spirit. It's a, it's a gathering. It's a, you know, it's a bundle, and all of it, in some way, uh, creates um, a person who is, I think, I won't say superior, but has the has the ability to understand what's going on, can make very decisive comments about it, fact-based, uh, and I think is a, is a much, uh, a, much um, a, a person who has the ability to, to make things better. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a place that, that when you leave, you feel as though you want to contribute. You want to make things better. Yeah. And so... I'm not certain if that's what the motivation is, but I watch my grandkids and I see what they do. I know what they were like before they went there. I know what they are like now. And they are, they're much stronger. They're much stronger. And they, and they always have smiles on their faces. So I, <laughs> it's kind of, that's great. It's, no, that's it's, great. It's, it's kind of difficult 
to put all of that in like a sentence. But I, all I can say is that if you go there, it will be one of the best decisions that you have ever had made in your life. Even if you think it was terrible decision at times. <laughs> even if you think it was terrible. Even if you had a horrible time. Even if you were never on the commandant's good list, on the dean's good list. When you look back at that experience, you, you, you still get a smile on your face because you weren't there alone. You had, you had, you had a thousand classmates who were going through the same thing that you were. So, and they were all very supportive of you. Even if you were on the Dean's list, commandant's list, superintendent's list, um, or if you were on the other Dean's list. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I, was, I was on the other Dean's list seven of the 16 times. So I, I was in the bottom. Of, <laughs> I almost right. made the commandant's fr unfriendly list. I never got close to anything on a soups list. So. <laughs> well, I, uh, I proudly say that I graduated in the upper three quarters of my class. <laughs> Oh, well, uh, and, I'll, and I'll share with you that we, we were still graduating in order of merit and we had 919 guys that got to graduate the day I graduated. And I was number 906. Well, I'll tell you one thing. In our class, the last guys, the last 10 were the most successful guys in our in their Air Force career. Wow. That's 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 good to know. <laughs> I wish somebody <laughs> told me that back then. <laughs> Uh, it is, um, I think the operative word is, I graduated. Yes, I've, and, I've heard that. <laughs> so speaking of, uh, so, so part of this uh, program, the series, is we like to find out a little bit more about our subjects. And so, Fred, can you tell everybody where you grew up and what got you to the Air Force Academy? I was um, a, a son of two teachers. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, my mom was an elementary school teacher. My dad was a vocational high school elect, um, uh, electrical engineer or electricity teacher uh, who he then became the principal of a high school and then a associate um, uh, superintendent of schools in Washington, in Washington, D.C. Uh, my dad and his dad and his dad were all college graduates. My dad graduated from Case Institute, which is now part of Case Western, Case Western Reserve. Oh, yeah. And he got his master's at uh, MIT in electrical engineering. Uh, and then cross-trained into education and uh, got uh, advanced degrees, I think a PhD from uh, Western Reserve in Cleveland. And I think he got a degree from Case Western when the two combined. Uh, my mom went to teacher's college. Uh, she, was the, she was the one who would tell me no. My dad would never say no to me if I asked a question. <laughs> And he would wait until I realized that he should have said no. <laughs> it was a, a, a family, a, a very close family, small family, um, that um, uh, 
gave all of us, myself and my cousins, uh, the room and the ability to wander um, and meander. And they would establish, uh, you know, a, a, a fence line within which we could wander. Mm. But if we stayed in there, uh, you know, you could do anything that, that you wanted. Now, if you touch the fence or tried to close, cross over it, uh, you would get a stern warning, not only from your parent, uh, but in the world that I grew up in the school, you'd get a warning from them, the community and the church. Mm. And so we grew up with these, this value system that was common and shared between the school, the community, the home and the church. Um, and as a result, if you begin to look at this community I grew in, grew up in, which was a segregated community, by the way, uh, it was extremely successful. Um, our sixth grade teacher, I, uh, she was Miss Smith, um, always told us that you, know, you are at least equal and you will contribute. And that wasn't a request. That was a that was a statement of fact. That was a demand. <laughs> that was a, yeah. I mean, it was an expectation. expectation. Yeah. Yep. And um, I've been told later in life you should never have expectations, mm -hmm. or no one should impose an expectation on you. Uh, but here is a truly a case where this was an expectation of this world that I lived in at that time. In my sixth grade class, sixth grade class, not, not a school, not over a bunch of years, but in my sixth grade class um, of 25 kids, you had the first black four-star admiral in the Navy. Cool. You had the president of Disney Television. You had the senior member of the DC City Council. Wow. And then me, <laughs> so out of, a, out of one class, that's what you got. And so, um, you know, many schools would say in our history, we had this. Yeah. But this would be fairly typical of the school system that I grew up in. The teachers, though we did not know and understand them at the time, were, were students who, because of racial barriers uh, in those days, were unable to get jobs in the government or industry. And so their career of choice was, was teaching, education. Uh, and so without us knowing it, we had probably some of the most brilliant minds teaching us and they were there, obviously, because they couldn't get other jobs, but because they acknowledged and recognized how important what they were able to teach the kids would make them contributors and, and at least equal. So it was a, a kind of a different world that I grew up in. Uh, you don't see that at all anymore. That's that's great. I, I had a similar experience, but not... <laughs> kind of on the opposite side of the fence and uh my my sixth and seventh grade classes turned out to pump out a whole bunch of doctors and lawyers and a couple academy guys and it was it was a weird little group out outside of 
a rural part of Alabama when my dad yeah. was stationed down there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I agree with you, the, the expectations of parents and teachers are what where a lot of kids get their start. And that, that's an important factor. In fact, I believe if I've read this right, there's a library named after your father. Is that correct? There is one. Yeah. The Francis A. Gregory Library. Um, it's um, perhaps um, a mile from where I grew up in D.C. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not sure when it was named, maybe in the 80s or so. But my dad was also the president of the D.C. Library Board uh, in Washington. And that's probably the reason why they uh, named the library after him. And then didn't you had an uncle that was very prominent as well, right? Um, my, my mother's brother, Charles Drew, uh, who was an Amherst grad, then uh, McGill, uh, and then Presbyterian Hospital, I think is where he was doing his work. So uh, don't quote me on that. He developed a method of, of storing blood. Uh, and he did that, um, I suspect, in the late 30s. Uh, and uh, he had a, in fact, the he developed and actually implemented the storage of blood and the ability to transmit it, transport it, uh, in England, uh, right at the beginning of the war of the Second World War. Uh, America wasn't in the war at that time, but that's where he he perfected. The method of, of storing and uh, uh, blood for you know, wartime injuries. Uh, he, he did that in, in England because they didn't have the racial issue right. uh, that we did in the United States with the use of, of multiracial bloods uh, transferring it from one race to another. England did not have that limitation. Blood is blood. <laughs> Uh, blood is blood. In fact, is uh, he developed something called the blood bank, which still exists. Yeah. And he named his first daughter BB uh, for blood bank. <laughs> that's a marketing deal. <laughs> that's, that's great. And then he got a university named after him, right? Uh, Charles Drew. Um, yeah, I think in Compton. California, there are a lot of schools named after him. Okay. And and Red Cross clinics um, named after him. Uh, and and uh, you know his 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 image, his portrait is uh, his, I see it quite often. And he died in um, 1950. Okay. So, and uh, I think it was uh, um, the first part of April. It was right at Easter. I think it was the 3rd of April or something like that. I had uh, scalded myself. I was nine. I had scalded myself with hot water uh, one evening, um, which I think it was the day before uh, Easter. My mom had told me I should not boil these eggs. Mm. Uh, but um, that's that was not going to hold me back. So <laughs> I, I was boiling eggs, and I heard her coming down the stairs. And so I pulled the pot off of the Ooh. burner, and it tipped and burnt my arm. Well, I immediately they immediately took me to Uncle Charlie, who I 
That's the way I knew him. Yeah. And so he took care of it that evening and he said he was traveling and that he would return and continue work on my arm. Well, that's the, the travel was the, uh, was the day, uh, the, uh, was the day oh, no. that he, he was killed in the auto accident. Probably the next day he was killed in an auto accident. So I'm still waiting for him to return. Uh, <laughs> oh gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. That was 72 years ago. Wow. <laughs> wow. So I think there was another important uh, story that I read that uh, you ran into somebody interesting around that time that took you on a flight. I had, my dad was a very interesting guy. He was, he, he was a, a semi-pro tennis player, a very good tennis player. And in our home in D.C., Washington, D.C., when I was extremely young, very young, my dad would have lots of friends at the house. And I recall crawling on the floor, sitting on the floor, listening to these uh, friends of his. And one bunch were tennis players. And... Um, you know, so I learned about volley and grass and clay courts and tea and 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 um, um, doubles and serves and things like that. And I think my dad had hoped that I would become a tennis player, which I <laughs> never did. But he had another group of player of, of, of men there, and I learned from them about the excitement of flying. And I learned that you couldn't talk about flying unless you used your hands. <laughs> okay. And so one of those, one of those uh, pilots, which I realized that that's what they were, and not only pilots, but fighter pilots, uh, offered to take me for a ride in an airplane. Yeah. And I was told that it was a Luscombe. And um, my dad said yes, because my dad never said no. <laughs> your, mom, your mom's I, freaking out. <laughs> five, five years old, and they put me in the front seat of this airplane. And I remember they had these, um, these telephone books that they put under me so that I could see through the window. And as the pilot is getting into the back seat, there's this banging on the side of the airplane and I look up and there's my mom <laughs> who is now screaming about uh, something about you'll never take my son in this airplane. <laughs> and so my first flight, and I can recall this, I can recall it, was a taxi around the runway. We never took off. Okay. Now it was many, many, many years later this, this would have been, uh, we're talking about 1946, 1947. Okay. It wasn't until 1977. Wow. That I was then approached by this gentleman who had attempted to take me on a ride. <laughs> and he, he told me and introduced me to the Tuskegee Airmen. And I had never heard of them before. Oh, really? Okay. But, as a kid, those were the airmen in my house. 
Wow. And, and the person who attempted to take me was Ben Davis, General, <laughs> General Ben Davis, who as, as a was the, a first graduate of the of the program at Moot Field in Tuskegee and was the first commander of the 99th uh, Pursuit Squadron and then the 332nd uh, Pursuit Group, Fighter Group, and then a composite group uh, that included both fighters and um, and uh, bombers, light bombers, I think B-24s and uh, uh, let's see, Mustangs and um, and Thunderbolts, uh, P-47s, B-51s. Um, and, but he is the person who attempted to take me for my ride. I did not know who he was. When I was growing up, all men, I knew men by first name, last name. Yep. So I knew him as Ben Davis. His wife, all the women were known as aunt. So <laughs> his wife was Aunt Agatha. <laughs> so that's how I knew, and which caused a lot of confusion because I didn't know who was in my family. <laughs> I didn't know who my godparents were. In fact, I introduced um, one lady as my godmother, and she turned to my mother and said, who's he talking about? <laughs> so I was, as an only child, I had a very few cousins, but lots of extended family, and I honestly had no idea who they were. <laughs> I, I love it. I, <laughs> that is awesome. I, I'm being an only child myself, I totally, I totally appreciate the fact you have uh, extended family that are not really related, but they are. <laughs> that's, that's great. So, so from, from that awesome uh, education and, and upbringing, you, you ended up uh, getting an, a, a nomination. What, what, drove you to the Air Force as opposed to the other schools? No, there are no other schools. <laughs> you and I are very similar in that mindset. Yes, sir. So what, 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 was your, what was your thought? I think that oh, my dad, um, though he wasn't a pilot, I think he really wanted to be. And I think he lived vicariously through me. Yeah. And so when I was a kid, he introduced me to two things. One, sports cars. Uh, that's, a, that's another story with myself and Curtis LeMay. <laughs> okay. and, and airplanes, um, because the sports car racing he would take me to occurred at Andrews Air Force Base huh. because Curtis LeMay in his, uh, his attempt to get the Sports Car Club of America revitalized, encouraged sports car racing on military bases, Air Force bases. And Andrews was very close to my home in DC, probably 20 minutes. Uh, so my dad would take me to sports car racing at Andrews, which occurred, by the way, on one day in 1954. Okay. Only day, but I recall it. I was there, huh. and I have, I have books that talk about LeMay's um, hope to revitalize the uh, uh, SCCA, Sports Car Club of America. Now, after the races, oh, that's where I got an appreciation for 
the sound of cars like Ferraris. And so as a very early age, I was into sports cars and sounds. But you had the ability in those days to wander and you could wander to the flight line. And on the flight line, there were World War II aircraft. And I, I learned on, the, on those days that the greatest smell, the greatest sound in the world was a Ferrari. And the greatest smell in the world was aviation fuel. <laughs> Jet gas. <laughs> and so I, at, at probably 12 years old, 13 years old, I had this decided that I was going to go to the Air Force, into the Air Force, and that I was going to have sports cars. And uh, I did both. <laughs> I did both. And, that's, and so, about, that's about the time the academy got started, right? Uh, when what? Is, that's around the time the academy got started. Um, no, this is actually before the academy got started. Okay. Um, I went to, I would go to air shows there. In fact, uh, my wife, I took my wife on her first date, on our first date, to an air show at Andrews. And... I saw and heard the Thunderbirds. Wow. Now, this would have been several years after I had would, would had started going there. Uh, when I was about 14, 13, or 14, I decided that I wanted to be a Thunderbird pilot. Huh. And so when the team landed, and they landed at Andrews after they had demonstrated, well, I guess, you know, they did the turn. I mean, yeah. that, uh, that's where they were. And I decided to go up and talk to one of the pilots and ask that person how I could become a Thunderbird pilot. And so I went up to this guy, and I remember his name was, was Creech, oh. <laughs> Lieutenant Creech. And I asked him how I could become a Thunderbird pilot. He said, they are building a school at the base of Pikes Peak. And that's where you need to go. <laughs> and so this may have been in, let's say, 1954, maybe? 1954. Okay. I was, uh, and so I decided at that time that that's where I was going to go. I was going to go. So years before, let's see. They didn't move down until 59. So they didn't move down until 58. Yeah. Uh, fall of 58. And so this is even before Lowry. So this would have been 55, 55, 6, 7, 8, 9, yeah. 55. And so this would have been before that. So the 54 works for me. And I go back and I see when uh, General Creech flew for the Thunderbirds, or for a team. I'm not sure what its name was. Um, and so all of those kind of, all those times kind of worked to about 1954 yeah. uh, when, I, when I decided I was going to go. So I would have been 13, I suspect, uh, when I decided I was going to go to the academy. Now, the problem I had was that um, I had a family tradition of Amherst College in Massachusetts. Uh-oh. And my grandfather had graduated in 1898 from Amherst. 
and was pres was captain of the baseball team, who was the class orator. Uh, what else did he do? He was an excellent athlete. So that's 1898. My uncle, Charlie Drew, yep. graduated in 1926 <laughs> from Amherst. And so by tradition, Amherst was, you know, one of the one of the places to be considered. Uh, since at that time it was a men's college uh, only, and all of my um, class, all of my cousins were female, and so I was the uh, I was the appointed one to go there. Oh no! <laughs> in, in fact, tomorrow. I mean, in fact, I'm actually going to Amherst tomorrow morning. Oh wow! Uh, to give a talk to my classmates at their 60th reunion. So <laughs> I applied and was accepted at Amherst and attended Amherst for one year and realized that that was not the place. Okay. For me. So you, so you I, did what the family wanted, but you said, okay, I, now it's time for Fred to do it. And, my, and my, <laughs> dad, my dad understood completely. Yeah. And, um, and so when I, I told him that I did not want to stay there, he had already begun searching for a Congress, someone in Congress who could nominate me to the Academy. Okay. Because DC had no Congress, no senators. And so he actually, as I am told, walked the halls of Congress, hoping to find a congressperson who would take a chance and nominate a, his son, me, uh, for an appointment to the academy. Interesting. So you you did not have a DC rep at that time. We still don't. There is still no I DC. There was rep. one. I thought there was one. Okay. Well, Norton Norton is. I don't know if she's still there, but she is a representative in Congress, but has no does not have congressional. It doesn't have the status and no nomination capability. Interesting. That uh, and you could check that fact, but I think that's correct. Okay. So kids in D.C. have to get a nomination from somewhere else. Wow. And so my dad, um, in my first year, I could have been in the class of 63. I was in the class of 62 in Amherst. I could have been in 63 at the academy. But uh, so this is what the situation was. When my dad realized that I did not want to stay at Amherst, he looked for a person, a congressman, who would nominate me. And he found one, and I believe the guy's name was Dawson, and he was from Illinois. I'm not sure about that. Okay. Okay, so I'm so late in the process. This person had already nominated, and we had principals and alternates. Yeah. Is that familiar to you? It's familiar. Okay. I, I ended up going, my dad, I couldn't get a congressman or senator either. My, my dad was a career Air Force, so they let me get a president. Oh, yeah. So you got a vice presidential or presidential. Yeah, yeah. Oh, something of that nature. Well, my parents weren't. Yeah. And so they found this guy, Congressman Dawson from Illinois, who had already had a principal nominate, a nominee. Uh, that's a guy named Chuck Bush. Huh. And then he had nine alternates, 
<laughs> and he had one slot. And so I was added as the 10th alternate. So you had a principal and either nine or 10 alternates. I can't wow. remember. Wow. And I was the last one. Well, Chuck Bush was selected and he was in the class of 63. And of the alternatives of the alternates, I was the only alternate who passed. And so at that time, they didn't have this pool of people who they, you know, would just fill in. Yeah. Or they didn't have Falcon Foundations or things like that. And so I was now a qualified alternate. And I got, and next year, I was offered principal nomination from uh, Adam Clayton Powell, uh, Reverend Adam Clayton Powell, Congressman Adam yep. Clayton Powell from Harlem. From New York, okay. And so um, I was, since I was now the principal, all I needed to do was to pass the physical again, which I did. Yeah. And so he was my congressional nominee, a nominator uh, from, uh, from New York. And he had a church, uh, the Abyssinian Baptist Church. And so my official home address while I was at the academy was his church in New York. <laughs> and the honor code was good with that, right? <laughs> and they were good. And I, in fact, I have that nomination sheet. I'll bet. And on it, it has the principal and then it has the, I don't know how they classify the uh, my home in DC, but my home in DC is noted on there too. So I don't think this was an issue of of honor or anything like that, since no. all of us, all of us uh, from the, the DC area had to have a nomination from someplace. And and my question, place. I guess my question is, were you about the only guy from Anacostia to get? No, the uh, there was a guy. Um, um, there was another guy who was a year or two behind me at Anacostia, who uh, his name was uh, Richie, I think. I'd, I'd have to look him up. He graduated, but he never finished Anacostia. He was an 11th grader and never completed his 12th. Uh, he never, he, he, <laughs> he came in as an 11th grader. Okay. A, a graduate of the 11th grade, but he didn't finish his. And so he was, he was my classmate at the academy. And unfortunately, he was killed very early uh, in Vietnam. Mm. Uh, but um, uh, so I think we are the only two. Um, I was class of 58. Richie would have been. 60. Well, it would have been um, if he finished the eleventh grade, and he, you know, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So he would have probably been a class of sixty-one. <laughs> okay, but he came at the end of his eleventh grade. Um, that just seems like a broad deal for the kids in D.C. not to be able to get uh, an easy nomination, if, especially if they've got a great academic program and great expectations from family and leaders, and and I. Yeah, I, just, <laughs> I'm, I don't have any. I don't have any statistics on DC. Uh, in fact, I'm. You know, I don't know. I mean, I I know some some guys who were on Naval Academy, yeah. who were from DC. For example, this gent who I talked to you about the four star admiral. Yep. yep. 
uh, uh, Paul, Paul Reason, Joe, Joe, Joseph Paul Reason, uh, got his nomination. And I don't know who he got his nomination from, uh, but he, he and I were both classmates all through high school. I mean, on the, no, we were, we were infants together. We've been lifetime, lifetime friends. Wow. So he was in the 60, he was in class of 62. Uh, he would have been in the class of 62, but he had actually three years of college oh. and graduated from the Naval Academy in 65. <laughs> uh, wow. So I don't know. I'd, I'll have to ch check with Paul to see who he got his nomination from. So, so real curious, being an older guy showing up at the, the base of the ramp in the summer uh, of 1960, how, how did that go? This is interesting. In those early days, they didn't know yet what class the, class, the optimum, optimum class mix would be. Okay. And so we learned later, one of my classmates, Joe Redden, um, who was a commandant at the academy, who became the commandant, I believe when we went out for our 20th reunion, he would have been our 25th reunion. 20th reunion, he was commandant. And he said that he was curious about the, the mix of the students in the classes. And he, he said they were experimenting initially hmm. and that the class of 63 was a very young class, meaning right out of high school. Yeah generally with no prep school. And so they were averaging about 18, 17 and a half to 18 years old. Our class, they did exactly the opposite. <laughs> and so we, on my class, primarily had, was an older class, meaning one year, two years of prep school. I mean, one year of prep school but one or two years before, after graduation from high school, before they came to the academy. And so our class, when we entered, averaged about 19. And so there is a big difference between a 17 and a 19. <laughs> uh, yes. So we, we actually bonded to more, we, we were closer to the class of 62 than 63. Hmm. Now, obviously the third class to the dually kind of thing kind of created antagonism, but 62 and us in 64, we were closer in age. In fact, we spent a lot of time, they were red tags, we were blue tags. Um, we spent most of our social time with, with the class of 92, 62. So so you're getting yelled at by younger guys is, is the challenge there. <laughs> well, it was, you know, you wouldn't have, and, and it, when uh, Joe Redden said that, we all looked at each other and it was like, wow. <laughs> we didn't, you know, we didn't, we knew there was a difference between ourselves and the class ahead of a 63. But we didn't realize that there was an age issue wow. here. And so... Uh, we had a lot of guys uh, who went to Bainbridge, uh, which was a prep school. There was no Falcon uh, Foundation at that time. So there were no New Mexico military, Northwestern, 
you know, uh, all of those, um, the, 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 those schools didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in fact, when I became the first alternate, when I became, the, when I was the 10th alternate, but passed, I immediately was given an opportunity to go to Bainbridge uh, for prep school to, to come in the next year. Okay. And, um, and so it still would have been in 64. And so I would have been there with many of my classmates who, in fact, did go to Bainbridge. Uh, but Bainbridge was, I think, the only prep school. I'm not sure if West Point had one or not, or wh whether everybody went to Bainbridge or not. That's history I don't know. And Bainbridge is now known as the Naval Academy Prep School. Is that right? Yeah, and it wasn't at the Naval Academy. It was right. so it was up, up in New England someplace. I don't know where it was. <laughs> I got a, I got invited to those to that place when I was a, halfway through my dually year, and I go, what a joke! I'm not going to go back and do this again. <laughs> yeah, dude. Oh, okay. So you know about Cambridge? Yeah, I know about the Naps. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, okay. Naval Academy Prep School Naps. Oh, yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> and and that's that's obviously way before our prep school began, which I don't know when. It started, but there was no prep school at the academy yet. Okay. And and Dulier was okay? Uh, for me? Yeah. Oh, it was a it was a kick. <laughs> we were <laughs> we were, you know, we were notorious. If it it sounds like I was like the class of 76. <laughs> if there was a if there was another way to get something done in a nefarious way we did it <laughs> so what um i'm I, I think the crowd wants to know what uh did, did you ever have any thoughts of quitting what was it ever so difficult that you couldn't take it anymore or did no what... no no because you had you had this support system yeah and if you thought you know you just couldn't handle it anymore suddenly you'd get a room full of your classmates uh telling you <laughs> that's not going to happen <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you know the thing was <clears throat> it was not uh it was uh the, the you know it was like we all made it because we'd had classmates who had been eliminated um many during a basic summer yeah uh i don't know the statistics on that but um we had we lost 300 out of 790 so uh we already had i mean i i think we were looking at hey look we're not going to graduate with two people three people we're going to graduate <laughs> with as many people as we can yeah and uh we're going to do everything and so militarily you know you'd have people come in and <clears throat> teach you how to you know, if you were on on the upperclassmen's bad list, <laughs> uh, they, you'd come in and get counseling from your classmates on how to uh, how to overcome that. If you had, you know, difficulties in academics, uh, they were there. Uh, military, uh, athletic things. I remember I had problems doing. I'd never been a gymnast. And so simple things like front body rolls and things like that. I'd never done that. Oh, man. Uh, I, 
I got I killed was, on a thing called the pommel horse. Oh my God. They, they, yeah, the things are like that. <laughs> and so I'd get down there and you talk about an EI, the extra instruction. It would be your classmates who were down there working you. Yeah. And uh, so, no, this was a, this was a, uh, this was a, a group for life. <laughs> it, it, uh, and it, it has remained that way. It has remained that way. So now your, your four years were all in the same dorm, right? We were, yeah, well, there was only one dorm. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I meant. Yeah. And then what squadron were you in the same squadron? Was, um, initially, my first year, I was in 12th squadron. And um, those actually are my closest friends. Okay. The next year, this wing expanded by four squadrons. And so they had to create four squadrons. Wow. And so um, I became a member of 18th squadron. Okay. 12th squadron became 17th and so 17th and 18th were very close to each other i mean we were in the same hallway together um but 18 was an expansion squadron and i was in it for three years um, and we created the uh the patch in 62 okay it still exists it's the one with the unicorn on it. Okay. And um, we called us Horny 18. Well, they changed that name, I think. <laughs> Horny 18. And in that time frame, after, just after you graduated, we became the Night Riders. Okay. Yeah, that's what I remember. Yeah, Night Riders. So the Night Riders um, still exist. In fact, it's my legacy squadron. And my grandson, who was the first to graduate, and my granddaughter, who graduated last Wednesday, were both in 18 squadron. Oh, they, so they get to go back to Grandpa's squadron, huh? They, they absolutely. Now, my grandson's sister, Caitlin, was in. Uh, let's see, son um, Scott was in 2011. Caitlin was in 2012, <clears throat> and so she was not. <clears throat> boy, lose my voice. Uh, she was not able to go into 18th as a legacy because you couldn't have, apparently, siblings in the same squadron. Oh, that's... that's... <laughs> and so she has actually been adopted as a honorary member of 18th. Of the, of the Knight Riders. Cool. Of the Knight Riders, yes. In fact, uh, she, I mean, she, she has a certificate. It says that she's an honorary 18 squadron, though she graduated in Wolfpack, I think, which was the third squadron. Okay, they changed that name. I don't think it was. I don't... I know, maybe it's the Wolfpack. It's a three-headed wolf. Okay. Or something. I don't know what. I don't know what they are. They've had to change a lot of the nicknames from my day, and because when the women showed up, a lot. Of names had to go away <laughs> yeah like a playboy squadron and yeah, yeah. you guys are pink panther and well not pink panther pink Panther's still there is the patch the same 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 patch same deal it's okay uh, they don't they don't get away with painting the uh campus pink anymore <laughs> no we did that once with uh an f-106 <clears throat> excuse me uh F-106 was put on the corner right there by the ramp. Yep. 
and it was uh, it was to be dedicated by the commander of NATO, um, General Lee. Uh, oh my God, what was that command? Whatever it was, yeah. it was it was at Pete. It was at Pete Peterson Field. Okay, and so his son was at the academy, was a student, was a cadet. And so the evening before, two evenings before this dedication, a, his squadron, the kids' the, the son's squadron, painted the airplane pink <laughs> or red. It was either pink or red. Yeah. <clears throat> Which infuriated the commandant, <laughs> who, we didn't, who we didn't like anyway. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> a general storm. And so he had everybody out cleaning this airplane, trying to get the paint off. Oh man! Um, for the dedication, and I don't quite remember how all that stuff went down. But you know, if the commandant thought that he had won this battle, he didn't win this battle. <laughs> he started a war. <laughs> he started a war, man. <laughs> So did, uh, did I guess you guys blew off steam by uh, pranks like that? Do you have any do you have any memorable ones that you can share? Pranks? Oh my gosh! <laughs> you know, we I think we did the same kind of things. That, you know, for example, on the um, uh, what was the um, there was a cartoon at the time, and there was a guy in the cartoon who had this. Uh, um, he was a money guy. He had a, a banks and vaults and things like that. Uncle Scrooge? No, uh, Scrooge, no, wasn't. Okay. I can't remember who it was. I can remember. I got his image in my mind, but I can't think of what it was. So we, we did the end of Arnold Hall to make it look like a vault. Oh, wow. Um, we did things off of the library where we, you know, um, in those days, they had the fountains in the air garden. I yeah. don't know if those were still operating when you were there. Oh, we did the last, what we thought was the last skinny dipping in the fountains before they filled them in. Well, the, yes, they filled them in, but we had fountains yeah. and these fountains would shoot water, I'd say 75 feet in the air. Yeah. And, uh, and when the winds came off of the mountains, <laughs> it would soak uh, the library, you know, the bridges yeah, yeah. and everything like that. And so we did a stunt one evening where we painted the front of the library the, facing the trazo. <laughs> and that evening the winds came in and blew the water onto this paint. Oh, no. Which now rolled. <laughs> just, I, don't know, I don't know if it was water-soluble. It must have been water-soluble because it was the next day it was streaked, um, which, yeah. Then we had, there was a little three-wheel car uh, built by Mitsubishi, I believe. And it just fit in the elevator. 
in in Vandenberg Hall. Okay. And the door opened to the front. Yeah, I remember. I mean, the door was in the front of the car. <laughs> and so if you pushed it into the elevator, there's no way to open the door because the back wall. Yeah, <laughs> it's holding it in. <laughs> so we, had, we did that. And then uh, somehow we got the brakes on. Uh, and then there was the uh, X1. Oh, God, that poor thing got moved around so The X4 <laughs> would move from place to place. Yep. And then um, the we used to have a... Did you have security flight when you were there? Well, not cadets, but we had definitely on-base APs, a secure, secure, air police type guys, yeah. We had, we, we had cadets, and they were right there in that glass in AB Complex. Uh, looking out over where you did tours. Okay, that we, that was command post. So yeah, we had we had people doing that, but we didn't have a special name for them. Uh, well, we call them security flight. <clears throat> so there would be one officer assigned, and he slept in that area. I don't know where he slept, but he slept in there. And so one night we went in and got his clothes. And hung them on the flagpole. <laughs> right. So he got up the next day, had nothing, skivvies, and it was very cold. And he looks out, and there are all his clothes at the top of the flagpole um, out there. Um, so, yeah. I mean, we, we did the typical stuff. Got to let the bureaucracy know that there's some spirited people here. <laughs> We had, oh yeah, we'd, we'd get chastised. And I know that as soon as these guys who did the chastising went back to the office, they were in hysterics. <laughs> yeah, slapping it. Well, that one could what they did this time. <laughs> yeah, you can't believe what these guys did. Uh, so, yeah, I think we 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 had those, those things, which I think were no real difference between... Uh, when we were there and when you were there. We, there was no Jack's Valley at that time. No we Jack's there. Valley? No, no Jack's Valley. Okay. Uh, we went on a survival hike. Um, but I think it was, I think in those days they were creating what would become in the future. Yeah. And so all of those things that appeared well-organized and traditions <laughs> when you got there, did not exist. Um, for example, well, so obviously there was no Jack's Valley. So right. there was no three weeks or whatever you'd spent out there. We, we went out for a week and it was basically navigation. I mean, I, I don't even re really remember. Just getting but, dirty, going out and getting dirty, right? Yeah, I mean, that's about it. And yeah. you, you see some early pictures of, of some folks sitting in front of a tent smoking <laughs> that was that was that was kind of it um but in our between our, our dually and our third class year we went on a zone of the interior tri trip across oh. the united states and we went to the whole class went on this trip and we went we went and sailed with the navy out of San Diego. Uh, there was an Air Defense Command 
base, Hamilton Air Force Base, which was north of San Francisco. Yeah. We went to George for tactical air, air command. We went to Tinker for logistics, Wright Pat for what is Air Material Command, but it was Systems Command mm-hmm. and um, Systems Command at that time. We went to uh, Plattsburgh for SAC, uh, B-52s, B-47s. We went to Fort Benning for jump school. And so that's what we did for three weeks. And then did you have uh, a little vacation time in there too? Had vacation time in there uh, and came back to the academy uh, probably at the end of August. Or something. Startup classes. So third classmen had no responsibilities for training the new classes. That would that would have been second and first class. Right. And and then the next year. Yep. Next year, we went to Europe as a group. And uh, well, there were five groups. Okay. They called it North North Europe, Central Europe, South Europe, South America and japan okay and so you were either you were on one of those five and we spent three weeks i was on central i think central europe but central europe included sweden Hmm. and so we we spent three weeks just wandering around uh europe uh, going to military facilities there, NATO, NATO countries. Uh, we also went to what they call pilot screening, uh, where they took us down. Um, all of us, all of us were pilot qualified, by the way, when we went in. Right. Uh, uh, there were no waivers, and so everybody was a pilot. And so we went to pilot screening. I went to Laredo. And they gave us uh, 15 hours in the T-37. They wouldn't allow us a solo. But uh, we flew uh, down there and just enjoyed life. Got to Uh, experience a little bit of Air Force life. We we did. We did. really did. And so that was not replicated. Uh, Those are the things I just talked about. I'm not certain how long they actually did that before. They began coming up with these very organized um, activities during the summer. Uh, so it, the summers were pretty much our own. Now, as the third, second class, first class, uh, you did have detail, uh, but um, it, you know, I mean, it was. I can remember I had firsty. I mean, as a as a third, as a second classman, I I was um, you know welcoming group. There, there there was no AOG per se. Oh. And so when the cadets came, they they just came immediately and they were sworn in. And so on day one, yeah, we, we you know we they were immersed in uh, basic cadets training. Yeah, they gave us uh, they had us dropped off by our folks at the base of the ramp. We went right into a line to get shots shots and a haircut and started handing us crap to take up to our rooms exactly well see they even yeah they did they give you shots down there at the bottom of the ramp 
Yeah, in the little clinic they had, you walk in the room and oh, boom, you're right there by the uh, yeah at the base of the library. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. We we started on the terrazzo level. Now we started down the down there, and then and then went down to get our supplies. Yeah, we followed lines everywhere. And then we came up those stairs to the fifth floor. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of stairs. I remember a lot of stairs and, and the altitude. A lot of stairs, yeah. <laughs> Did you, um, so I, I think there was another noteworthy thing that happened while you were a cadet and you had a, a, pres a president visited for a graduation. We had, um, uh, JFK came and he was there for, well, for 63. He was there for yeah. June week 63. Yeah. Uh, let's see, for us, we had Curtis LeMay. You know, for 64. And honestly, I don't remember who was there for 62. Yeah, 61. I, I barely remember who was there at mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, May and I, well, this is another story, but yeah, yeah. when I graduated, I knew he was a sports car guy. Yeah, from the SEC. So when I went up to get my, <clears throat> I was given my uh, diploma. And then we went to him to salute and the salute and the handshake and all that kind of stuff. And I said, sports cars. And we began talking about sports cars. <laughs> Slowing up the whole show. <laughs> I mean, and finally, the I think it was a director of admissions, a guy named uh, Ferguson, Colonel Ferguson. But I can't find him. I have a picture of him. But <laughs> the name sits my mind. He finally touched General LeMay's elbow. And said, "Sir, we we have a few more graduates." <laughs> and so <laughs> was, that's uh, great. It is a. It was just a, such a coolest thing. Uh, and he was a different person than this. You know this this this. Uh, the, 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 our conversation was so unlike his reputation. Yeah, he he was known as. <laughs> Pretty hard nosed guy, and sounds like yeah. you, you hit him on a uh, on a positive uh, fun yeah. angle. What? Um, oh, so okay. So you're talking to General Lemay about sports cars, and you've been to the sports car race at Andrews. What did you have for a firsty car? Oh, I had uh, I had a Triumph TR3, and then I had uh, I bought that. Um, the day of graduation, the day of 63's graduation. Yep. And then uh, in October, I got the first Pontiac GTO. Oh, wow. Um, the 64 Pontiac GTO. And um, we had three GTOs in my class. And we had about 250 Corvettes. <laughs> Your, your class, uh, I think, showed up at my folks' home a couple of years later when a lot of those guys were going through SOS. My dad was an instructor at SOS, and mm -hmm. uh, and he, he he did not like Academy guys because they all had the cute blonde, the, the cute wine. <laughs> they had the, uh, the the Corvettes. <clears throat> they were all the fighter pilots, and he just he just go, these guys are driving me crazy. And then, so, of course, I go there, and he, he's all cranky about that, too. That's pretty funny. <laughs> We called it the uh, cadet vet. Yep. 
and it was sold by uh, Daniel Chevrolet, which is still there. I'll bet. Uh, <laughs> uh, Daniel's, uh, Daniel's was downtown, not, uh, let's see, it finally moved down on I-25, I the southwest corner of Colorado Springs. But uh, Daniel's was the Chevy dealer, and uh, Johnson Pontiac was the Pontiac dealer. Uh, but the Corvettes, you could see them coming in on trucks, and they were just, you know, delivered. <laughs> and the class would go down. But 250 out of 490, that's, wow. that's the Corvettes. <laughs> I, think, I think our class, for whatever reason, they got fired up about... Uh... Oh, I'm going to say the wrong car. The great man. I mean, yeah, Datsun, the 240, you guys. Now, they, they, they did a deal where they flew back to Pontiac, Michigan, and 200 oh. of the guys got these Trans Ams. Was that the, the, yes, the car? And they got yeah. a, a police escort to the Michigan border so they, could, they couldn't speed in the state of Michigan. And then they all drove back in, in a mass convoy. All, all oh, my all God. Out. Yeah, the Firebirds. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Trans Ams. Trans Ams. Fireworks yeah, they, or whatever it was, yeah. Yeah, I mean it was. Uh, those were big cars, and and now you go out there, and all you get is pickup trucks. I so, that's I heard that. I go, what what the heck is going on? I my knows. my first car was a Lotus Europa. A Europa, I know that. I know it well. Um, I was doing my part for the the uh, energy crisis because it got forty miles to the gallon at ninety miles an hour. Well, you know the <laughs> um, I only had the one Brit car. Which was the the Triumph TR3? Yeah, I only had the one. <laughs> and, then, and then I went. Um, let me see. From there, I went Italian. I went Italian, and then I've come back to American. So I'm a I'm a Corvette guy now. Oh, cool! But I I had four Cor oh, I had four Ferraris. Wow. Um, I had. Um, Got a series of a Ford Pantera, which was an Italian bodied. I remember the Pantera. Yeah. Uh, gosh. Um, I had a Supra. I had a, um, I, I can't remember all of them I've had. Uh, but um, I'm settled. I'm happy with uh, US built cars now. Okay, good. So, so Fred, you uh, you end up at Randolph. I do, yes. And but from Randolph, you go to Stead. Oh, I, go I, to Stead. Well, I don't know where Stead is. <laughs> we had a. Well, let's see. Well, we had our airplane choice or desire, and at that time, this was sixty four. This was just at the ragged edge, the beginning of Vietnam. Yeah. But Vietnam was not a big, was not a biggie at that time. Yeah. Uh, but the but the F-104, the F-105, the 104, and the F-4 were the choice airplanes. Right. And so when it came down to choosing what airplane you wanted to go to, about, I don't know, 10 or 12 of us decided that if everybody was going to go to fighters, let's not go to fighters. Okay. And so we decided to go to helicopters. 
Uh, and so the helicopter school was located at two places. It was a two-part um, school. The first six months, first, let's see, six months, yeah, first six months would be at Randolph. Okay. Um, and what they did was take us, and there were five of us, six of us. Well, no, wait a minute. There was an A class and a B class. So there would be 10 of us or 12 of us who went to Randolph. And we were put in something called the Military Assistance Program, MAPS program, <laughs> uh, which is where the U.S. was now training folks from NATO and other countries, such as Vietnam, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and places like that. So yeah. they, they brought them down there to, after they sent them through language school, to learn how to fly, and the airplane was the T-28. Okay, wow. North American Trojan. And so we were inserted into that program, and we had our own flight, but there were only like five of us in it. And when we finished that program, we then went to Stead, which was in Reno, Nevada. Okay. Uh, which is where they have the air races now. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where the helicopter school was. And uh, it was at 5,000 feet, 5,500 feet or so. And so we did six months of helicopter training. And we got our wings at the completion of that program up there. Okay. So we entered in August in B class and we finished in August. Okay. So. Uh, from there, I went as a helicopter pilot initially to Vance. I uh, was flying the H-43 uh, Pedro, and we were fire. We carried a fire suppression kit with us. We could hook up a fire suppression kit, and we'd have firemen. And we were there at the base in case of an accident okay. that we could suppress. Then I went to Vietnam, and the role was expanded from this local base rescue, which was the fire suppression kit to search and rescue SAR. And so I did search and rescue at the, up in Vietnam, I was at the north end of Vietnam at Da Nang. And so I flew north in, in north, south Vietnam and in north Vietnam, uh, did rescue, I, did rescuing. I, did I read it right that you did 550 uh, combat SAR missions? I, yeah, I did. Um, oh my goodness. Easily did that. Wow. All of those records, however, disappeared. We, we don't know where all of our records went. But when Vietnam closed down, all of our logbooks and everything else uh, were sent back to the uh, helicopter school at that time, which was in Albuquerque. Uh -huh. uh, and, um, and then they were allegedly sent to the Air Force Museum at Wright Pat, but Wright Pat has no record of them. And so there's no way for me to either prove or disprove that number. But I have been told 550, and that's the number that we kind of stick with. Well, I think I think a bunch of air medals and, and other distinguished uh, awards might help justify that number. Uh yeah, uh, you know, and some of the awards were for individual activities. Some of them were 
for you know a series of operations and so it's i don't have you know i've got a lot of that stuff here uh, but um, it would be difficult to go back and say and this air metal or this dfc was because <laughs> it was it was uh, you know for a year and every day was a new day <laughs> but i i don't doubt the 550 I, I, at all. That tells me that you had more than one hop a day. <laughs> we had, yeah, and we weren't on every day. Yeah, so, right. Wow. It would be unusual to, to head all three three times in a day. So, so you then, survived that and you made it to Whiteman? <clears throat> Whiteman for, um, I came back as a helicopter pilot, and uh, they had uh, missiles, the Minutemen 3. At uh, I think well the Minutemen I don't know what number it was, yeah. and they had these remote sites. Now launch control centers would be out around Whiteman, and they needed crews, security, cooks, and as a helicopter guy, that's what we did. We flew the crews to these sites, and the security and cooks, and we did other flying as required. And um, I was averaging, I was averaging 75 hours a month. Oh my. Uh, helicopters. But here's the interesting thing. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, because I'd had this T-28 training early in my life at Randolph, they then considered me fixed wing qualified. Ah. And so there was a U-3. Cessna 310, they called the Blue Canoe. <laughs> okay. And so there were two guys, a guy in class of 65, John Bickham, and myself had gone through this helicopter training. We had both flown T-28. So the two of us were the only qualified pilots on Whiteman. We had this 13, 14,000 foot runway. There are no airplanes there <laughs> except for the nine or 12 Hueys and this blue canoe. <laughs> and so Bickham and I were told you need to go fly these airplanes uh, seven hours each month to justify their existence here right. or, SAC, or SAC would take them back. And so we would rack up our helicopter time and then we'd have to go off and fly this, this 310 uh, individually. Huh. And so we had a, um, I would, I, I had a couple of months where I was flying pretty close to 110 hours in a month. Well, I think after 550 combat missions in Vietnam, a, a deal like that is probably good for uh, calming you down a little bit. Well, I, I guess it was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I but, mean. Uh, but while uh, there, uh, but while there, I realized that there was a, there was an uh, there was there was literally I mean really a glass ceiling for helicopter pilots. Yeah, and I I began searching for what to do next, and I found that I could apply for test pilot school, which is what I did there. And and um, at the same time, the Air Force came in, and I have no idea why they did it. They said all of you guys who went through this helicopter program 
you're going to have to leave helicopters and we're going to train you in any airplane you want at any and send you to any base you want. And it was like, what are you talking about? And so I said, okay, I'll take F-4s. And they said, done. And I said, I want to go to Davis Mountain. They said, done. And so I went from Whiteman back to Randolph to transition into T-38s and then to DM as a F-4 school, F-4, front seat F-4. All my classmates had been backseaters. They're moving up the front seat. And so I'm there with all my classmates and my experience is all helicopters. And there's his backseat F-4s. Uh, I am go through the school, I'm doing well. And I'm uh, we're within a week of graduation. I have my port call. I'm on my way back to uh, Vietnam, Southeast Asia. And they call me and said, you've been selected to go to test pilot school. And I, I <laughs> <laughs> and they said, do you remember? And I said, vaguely. <laughs> and so they said, well, we're going to send you exchange to the Navy school, Navy test pilot school, as a helicopter pilot. And I said, stand my one. And so I went and talked to my DO. And he said, well, let's go down. Let's fly down there. So we took off from DM and flew to Pax River. Because uh, I hadn't graduated yet, you know, I'm I'm still within a couple of days of graduation, huh. and I go in and I negotiate with the skipper of the school, and I he agreed that I could do both the rotary and the fixed wing, cool. course, as much as I could. And so then I called, went back, called MPC, and said, "Okay, I'll take it." Now the Air Force never knew about this this agreement that I had with the school's skipper. Yeah. Well, when I went down there, I went through the helicopter rotary program, and I did as much of the fixed wing program as I could, which was probably 85% of it, 90% of it. And then I was assigned to Wright-Patterson as a helicopter test pilot. Okay, so I got up there, and I, I realized that, no, this is not where I'm going to go. So there was a fighter operations there also. And I negotiated with the fighter leader if I could get out of cargo, which is where the helicopters were. Mm -hmm. I could I could move into fighters and fly the F-4s and the Huns and whatever else they had. But I had to get permission from my cargo guy. So I went back to him and I with a resignation form in my hand, wow. saying either you let me go to fighters or I'm quitting. He kicked me out of the office. <laughs> About 11.30 that night, he called me back and said, if you maintain your helicopter, your uh, competency, you can go to fighters. And so by 6 the next morning, I had moved my stuff from one building to another. And I was a dual qualified uh, test pilot in both rotary and fixed wing. Wow. And I had an amazing commander who tried to kill me. And that's a whole lot of, lot of stories there. <laughs> Uh, but then NASA needed a test pilot, current rotary and fixed wing. They didn't have any. And they came to the Air Force and asked. And apparently I was the only one on the list. Wow. So I was loaned to NASA for two years, uh, allegedly two years. 31 years, 31 years later, I left NASA. <laughs> so you were loaned in uh, 
to, to Langley as a test pilot initially. Yes, for in, from 1974, it was supposed to be for two years, yeah. 74 to 76, and it went to four years. Uh, I went to Armed Forces Staff College during yeah. that four years. And was that on a, a, a remote program, or was that on at the... No, it was right there in Norfolk. Oh, Norfolk, okay. So it was right, I, I was in Hampton, and so uh, the school was right across the James River. Yeah. But when I was a test pilot, I saw this advertisement yeah. It said, apply for the astronaut program. And I thought, why not? And so I applied and heard nothing. Uh, I applied two ways. Once as a, one, as a military guy, uh, and all of those guys were out at Edwards. I'd never been Edwards. And so I figured there's no chance in hell these guys are going to even look at me. I'm a helicopter guy. I was a right pat, and I'm with NASA. And you came through the Navy Channel. Oh, my goodness. I came through the Navy Channel. So I <laughs> had any contact at Edwards. So I also applied as a civilian. Okay. Asking him in it and saying that I would resign from the Air Force if selected. So I am um, through Armed Forces Staff College. And again, about a week before graduation, I got this, oh, they invited me down. Oh, I mean, I had, a, that, that was an experience because, uh, uh, let's see, um, I got called by, I'm having a mental block right now, by the commander out there, three-star, uh, okay. at Edwards, said, who the, who the hell are you? <laughs> as, uh, and so uh, uh, Stafford, Tom Stafford, General Stafford, uh, Tom calls and he says, who the hell are you? He says, John Young in the astronaut office who uh, said, who, who is this Air Force guy applying as a civilian? <laughs> and so John called Tom Stafford. And Stafford called me, and I told him who I was, and he says, oh, okay. And so that was in August of 77. In November, I got invited to go down for an interview, uh, and I was in one of the last groups to interview down there. And I was totally out of the chain of command. I mean, I didn't know what was going on sure. at all because I was at NASA. And so there were no rumors. I didn't realize that if you didn't hear anything, that was good. <laughs> well, I'm about a week from graduating from Armed Forces Staff College, which was in Norfolk. And uh, I get a buck slip one morning. It says, call the astronaut office. I called. And uh, George Abbey says, you still interested in this job down here? So that was his. <laughs> and that's, that's the way he, that's traditionally the way they tell a person that they've been selected is to ask them if they're still interested in the job <laughs> down there. So obviously I said yes. And um, so I finished test pilot school, I mean, uh, staff college in January. We didn't report until July, June, June. Okay. And so I went back to NASA for another three or four months and, and did test piloting stuff for them. Uh, and then the rest is history. <laughs> And then, well, speaking of history now, you were a uh, Capcom for a pretty significant day in NASA history. Did, did you want to share any of that with the folks? Um, I was, after I'd flown in 85, they put me in as a Capcom uh, capsule communicator in mission control. And so we not only did the monitoring and communication with an actual mission, 
but also during a lot of their training, a lot of the integrated training uh, that a crew had. And so I, let's see, did the uh, Capcoming over the summer of, oh gosh, uh, 85, uh, summer of 85, and in September or ish, I became the lead ascent entry Capcom. Yeah. Uh, and uh, let's see how that worked. So I worked several missions, but I was training Capcoms at the same time. And so I don't know how many missions I did, but in January, late January, we had um, SCOBY, uh, SCOBY's mission, uh, 51L on Challenger. Um, and I was the lead Capcom and Dick Covey, who was also a graduate, uh, was the Capcom, actual a Ascent Capcom. And I'm sitting next to him um, doing other things, but basically monitoring his progress. And um, so he's staring at a screen in front of him that just had data on it. Yeah. And since I'm not, I'm kind of casually looking at it, I'm actually looking around, so I'm seeing the big monitor in front, which is actual, you know, video. And then behind the flight director, there was a camera, there was a, a TV screen there. And everything had gone well in the countdown and um, uh, lift off and, uh, and, and add uh, 70 seconds or something like that. I saw this thing kind of come apart and I honestly intellectualized this thing to be a the solid rocket booster um, uh, blow off um, separation yeah uh, but I thought you know it's way too soon and I was knew something was going on and I almost picked up my mic and said Godspeed uh, challenge but I didn't do that but the point here is that the data that everybody was looking at on their monitors was buffered and it was about maybe a two or three second delay yeah. between actual versus um, actual versus what was seen. Yeah. And so everybody's still staring at their monitors. I'm looking at actual. Oh man. And then suddenly all the information on the screens went blank. And people are beginning, you know, what's going on? What's going on? And they look up and they see what's going on with visual visual. Now the public affairs guys are working from a script. Oh, geez. And they're still reading yeah. the script, and which is confusing all of us in there. So um, I guess five, six, seven seconds after the accident, after the actual occurrence, uh, I think the public affairs guys now begin to realize that something is amiss and they stop talking. Yeah. And so now all of us are kind of sitting in there watching the screen and um, the flight director, Jay Green, you know, is um, saying any communication, any communication. And so we're broadcasting uh, and nothing. And uh, Jay says, uh, okay, let's lock the doors. And so we sat in there for easily four hours, five hours, 
going through every microsecond yeah. uh, in, in the reruns to see if there was something that we should have seen yeah. that could have, could have saved the crew. Uh, is, is there a, uh, any kind of emergency procedures for a crew? Uh, no, that, see that, that was a, that was an unknown unknown. We didn't know. Well, after the fact, we realized that there was gas path going through one of the fuel joints, yep. uh, but we'd never had an issue with it. And the philosophy was if we got back safe and launch them again. Oh, wow. And so after the fact, we go back and say, oh yeah, we do see that there was a problem with the, uh, design of this particular uh, joint uh, and which was exacerbated by the uh, dynamic bending of it um, during ascent. And so, um, yeah, so we, we, we figured out what the root cause of it was. The root cause was bad design of the joint. Yeah. And um, and then it was totally redesigned. Re, it was redesigned and re remanufactured. Um, and you know there was some showboating uh, there too. But um, in fact, it was it was a it was a design issue uh, that we had you know just kind of assumed that yeah. it was okay. And, so I mean that's a long story. No, I, I, but, um, people can look it up. I just uh, you were you're right in the middle of it, and I as far as the ground control part, and I thought that was it, it would be interesting for folks to hear what what your perspective was. Well, we yeah, it was it was one of those things that you know it it, it took the recovery of the it took the recovery of the remnants of it from the ocean. Uh, along with um, data that existed, yeah, and then obviously you'll you'll find a group of people who will come up and say, "I've been telling you about this all <laughs> you know, for so long." So it's a yeah. it's a mishmash of stuff uh, that goes on and a lot of finger pointing and you know somebody's got to be blamed and it's you know it's not me it's them. Well, like you say, it's getting to the root cause and making sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, our whole life has just been a set of, we, we learn from failures. Yeah. And when you do risky and scary things, there's a, there's a chance that you can be injured or killed. So, but we, so we just accept that fact. So that brings me to the, the question that I have, and I hope other folks have that. And then what was it like on STS-51B when you went for the first time? had the candle lit and rode the ride what what is that experience like because can you it really is, that? it is um they they do the best they can training you uh to uh, training you and and giving getting aware so that you have awareness of what is expected or what's what, what, what what you will expect yeah and i think we probably get I don't know, some, something above 90% of, of the experience. But the experience that we uh, get through training is principally how you safe the vehicle if there is a failure of some sort. 
Yeah. Now, they try to simulate G's, rotations, and things like that as best they can. But they're only so good at it. And so it's that 10%. That's what they leave out. That's what's missing in training. And one, one of the things that you find on an actual mission is that the vehicle was much more reliable than anticipated. Hmm. Because all you did was train for failures. And <laughs> failures just did not exist. And so you're just hanging on for the ride. So it's the thrill of it. It's the thrill that's missing in training. Yeah. It's the um, it's a G force. It's the vibration. It's the visuals. It's the uh, reaction of your crew uh, to it. And then the sensation when you go from three Gs to zero Gs, and you have the first awareness that. That you float and that you survive, <laughs> and that the visuals now through the windows just blow your mind as you look down at the earth or look out into the heavens. So that's the thing that's missing in the uh, in the training, and uh, uh, so that's why you probably never get anybody coming back and saying, "Oh, it was adequate," or <laughs> or never, or something of that nature, because it's. It's not. It's much, much more. It's more than that. It is an experience. Part of a. It's a. It's. It's part of this journey that you're on. Yeah. And and you are overwhelmed by the things that you see, on, on the journey. And um, that's uh, that. That's that's the exciting part of spaceflight. When the uh, when the rockets first fire, when you're on the pad, when do you start feeling the G's? How how quick of a how, how... the uh, you you have five rockets. There are three on the back of the orbiter. Uh, those are liquid uh, liquid. Oh, they're oxygen, hydrogen, uh, ignitiate. Uh, they're the fuel is hydrogen. The uh, oxidizer is oxygen. And when those start, it's only uh, it's less than a it's less than a million pounds of thrust. Maybe three quarters of a million pounds of, of thrust. It's insignificant. The vehicle weighs. Well, maybe six million pounds okay. or so. When they and, and so the, those main engines start um, maybe five seconds, six seconds before ignition of the solid rockets. Right. Uh, the solid ro rockets ignite at what we call zero. So you're counting down six, five. The main engine start four, three, two, one, zero. Solids ignite. When the solids ignite, there is no doubt you are going someplace <laughs> because it is a, I mean, it is, everything begins to shake and you, you looking out the window and you see what you think is the earth being moved away from you um, as you accelerate straight up uh, for 10, for 10 seconds. No, it's not high G. It may be um, a G and a half, maybe two. Uh, you go straight up for 10 seconds, and then you roll literally on your back and then head out over the um, Atlantic Ocean. And if you're going to go uh, equatorial, I mean, if you're going to go straight east, yeah. uh, then you're going to aim right at Africa. You're going to cross Africa 
I don't know, 18 minutes after you take off from Florida. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty quiet. And, but you don't have a sensation of speed was you're outside the atmosphere. And the sensation of speed generally is because you hear the air outside uh -huh, okay. uh, on the vehicle and you don't. All you hear is the main engines. Um, two, two minutes after you take off, the solids have burnt all of their fuel and they are blown away. Okay. And so now you just have this uh, these main engines, the three main engines, and they are the ones that actually take you up to three Gs, which doesn't sound like an awful lot, but we only know them as momentary. In this ascent, you you have sustained three Gs, and the sustained three Gs, essentially, it makes you feel like all of the oxygen is being pulled out of your, out of your lungs. You the people are going, Ugh. yeah. Like, and uh, I, there's probably a scientific reason for that. But um, <laughs> I think at that point, the brain is saying, wait a minute, what are we doing? Did, did, did I miss this email? Did, I mean, <laughs> you, missed and, uh, <laughs> you, you accelerate up to um, the uh, orbital velocity, uh, 17,500 miles an hour, at which time the engine shut off and you go from three Gs to zero Gs. And you stay that uh, way for a couple of days uh, for a week? Huh? You stay zero G for a week or so? Well, it depends on the mission length. Okay. The guys on the space station are there six months. Wow. And, uh, we we were only on orbit, I think my longest was seven days, maybe eight days uh, up there. So three, I have about 21 days. And you, have, uh, you have one night launch. Uh, no, I had several several night launches um and i had two thanksgivings on orbit <laughs> okay yeah. i guess that sucks <laughs> i don't know yeah it was good the food was good <laughs> but you hey, look, uh, uh can we continue this at some other time or well i was just gonna wrap it up real quick and say you were a nasa administrator and you got a building named after you <laughs> the the building was a mistake and they <laughs> real and they will soon realize that uh, they they meant Bill Gregory and not Fred Gregory. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to thank you for that. This is this has been fantastic. Well, I thanks, John. I appreciate you uh, considering me, and uh, I hope any anything would have. I mean, I hope something. <laughs> Would, well, would be this this will be great. I what I'll do is I will uh, I'll send this out to you in the finished format. It'll go to the world on Sunday, but I'll try and get it out to you tomorrow sometime, and you can share it with right. once your friends. I I never listen to anything, okay. nor do I ever read anything. <laughs> okay. So, uh, if you think it is appropriate, do do whatever you'd like with it. <laughs> sounds good, but I, I'm sure your family will enjoy hearing some of this stuff. <laughs> okay sir yes sir thank you all right take care bye-bye